Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving a warm Dallas welcome to Mr. Peter Orzag. I should immediately say that I have gotten more hate mail about uh, aging gracefully than any other book that I've written, not because of its contents, but because many people bought it thinking it was a self-help book. And instead, it's about 401ks, and they didn't really like that. Uh, let me just give a couple comments about sort of where we are in uh, the economic cycle and uh, where we are in our uh, political economy. And then we're going to leave almost all the time. This is going to be really brief. And we're going to leave all the time for your questions and a discussion. Uh, on the economy, what I would say is we are most but not all the way through the deleveraging process that follows a financial crisis. So uh, if you look at the, a multitude of indicators, uh, if you look at household debt as a share of disposable income, as an example, we are about three quarters of the way back from the peak to uh, the levels that existed in 2003, 2004. If you look at the stock of vacant homes being offered for sale, that's perhaps the single best indicator of the state of the housing market because the higher that excess inventory, the more downward pressure there is on pricing. Uh, according to the Census Bureau, there were 1.3 million vacant homes being offered for sale in 2003-04. Uh, at the peak of the crisis, it was 2.2 million. At the most recent uh, uh, release from the Census Bureau was 1.6 million. So most, but not all the way uh, back. While we're not yet all the th way through that process, however, growth is going to remain subdued. And that's typically what occurs following a financial crisis as you're working through uh, the deleveraging process. And one of the biggest concerns there is uh, that the longer that goes on, the more Americans will lose their attachment to the workforce and will suffer a permanent productivity problem from uh, that loss. Uh, as I think is well known, the share of the population with a job, the employment to population ratio, was 62 to 63% before the crisis. It fell to 58 to 59% during the crisis, and it's gone sideways since then. So that is roughly 4% of the population more who is not working today relative to, uh, let's say, five, six years ago. And if you want one indicator of the concern with people who are out of the workforce for a long time and, and not coming back to work, just look at what's happened to disability insurance over the past three or four years. Relative to 1990, uh, the share of the population on disability insurance has more than doubled. And it's gone up by about 30% over the past uh, three or four years alone. There's no way the underlying incidence rate of disability has gone up 30% over a three or four year period. That is a response to a very weak labor market. And the problem with that is that once someone goes on disability insurance, they never come off, or 
they almost never come off. The exit rate out of disability insurance is almost zero. So if you've got a 55-year-old who loses his job, can't find other work, runs out of unemployment benefit, and uh, has nothing el nowhere else to uh, go, and winds up on disability insurance, that person is never coming back, as opposed to uh, you know, coming back for another 10 or, 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 or so years in, in productive uh, work. So that's a significant concern. And then on the other hand, it's also the case that uh, what typically happens following financial crises is you have a very rapid run up in debt. Because the economy is, is weak and tax revenue goes down, uh, certain kinds of spending like on food stamps and other means-tested benefits go up. Uh, governments typically step in to try to cushion the blow in terms of unemployment as I was just discussing, and they also typically step in to provide assistance to the financial sector, which is typically weakened during, uh, in the aftermath of a severe financial crisis. All of which put together puts a lot of upward pressure on debt, and not surprisingly in the U.S., we've, uh, debt as a share of GDP, public debt as a share of GDP, has gone up by about 40% of the economy over the past few years. So we have this duality of problems, which is remaining weakness in the labor market and also significant run-up in debt on top of an already unsustainable long-term fiscal picture. And the question is, how are we going to, you know, how capable are we of attacking both of those problems simultaneously? And where I just want to end this brief thing before we get to uh, uh, the questions that you've already submitted and, and other questions you may have is, all of that is eminently uh, addressable and fixable if we had a functional political system. And one of my, <laughs> so that's like the joke about it, uh, the economy <coughs> consuming a can opener. Um, but uh, if we had a functional political system, we could handle all that. And that really highlights, I think, the central political economy dilemma of our time, which is if you look empirically at votes in the House of Representatives, uh, in the late, mid to late 60s when President Johnson was, uh, was president, uh, the overlap between Republicans and Democrats in the House of Representatives was significant. The most liberal Republicans and the most conservative Democrats would vote together on a whole bunch of things. And that's where deals got done. Uh, if you roll forward to the mid to late 1980s, that overlap was dwindling. And if you roll forward to today, just empirically on vote uh, patterns, it's gone. There is no middle. We're effectively a bimodal co Congress at this point. And one of my biggest concerns is if that were just gerrymandering or just uh, a sort of inside the beltway phenomenon, uh, it would be difficult to address, but we'd at least know what to do. If it were just gerrymandering, we'd say, we've got to fix the districting laws. I am now increasingly convinced that that provides some but nowhere near the majority of the explanation for what's happened. On gerrymandering, by the way, just as a small aside, since that's the one that people on CNN will typically pontificate on first, uh, if you look at uh, polarization trends in the Senate, they've gone up almost as much in the House, and at least to my knowledge, we have not redrawn state lines, so it immediately raises a question about gerrymandering as being the only explanation. I think the, a far bigger explanation is that to a degree that we have not appreciated, the country itself, even though it's less polarized than the Congress is, has been polarizing. We have been uh, separating ourselves. 
And that is increasingly being magnified but reflected in the Congress itself. And the reason that that's troubling is if it's, if it's us, it's a lot harder to fix. And the reason that I think this is happening in turn is that we are increasingly surrounding ourselves both virtually and physically with like-minded people. Uh, physically, it's remarkable the degree to which neighborhoods are now politically segregated. Uh, Republican neighborhoods, Democratic neighborhoods. If you look at a county level basis, there's about 3,000 counties in the US, and look at landslide counties as an indicator of whether the county is polarized, uh, about 30% more of the US population lives in a landslide county today than in the 1970s. And again, by the way, you can't explain that by gerrymandering because the counties haven't, haven't changed. Uh, virtually, uh, we used to all get our, our news feeds, our news from uh, Walter Cronkite. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that was <coughs> Evening News and the newspaper, both of which were heavily edited slash produced and the fringes were removed. It was a highly centralizing uh, force. Instead, today, you can construct your own uh, reality with regard to where you get your news. I, I, the trivial example of this that I use is uh, I have a Twitter account that I, I don't actually tweet anything, I just use it as a, a news feed. So I follow maybe 30 or 40 people and uh, I use that as one way of, of kind of filtering out what's important, what's not. Uh, by the way, I, I, I don't tweet anything and I, 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 I still have people who are signing up to follow me, which I don't really <laughs> un understand. So I now allow my children to randomly say yes or no to the people who are following me because there's no point anyway. Um, anyway, ab about uh, six months ago or so, one of the people I was following, I wake up every morning and I realized that person was really annoying me, uh, mostly because he was criticizing me every morning. So uh, one day I realized, you know, I don't need to take this. I just unfollowed that person. And two or three weeks later I realized he was probably still, I never, went back and checked, but lobbing these grenades in my direction, but it was not affecting my mental space at all. Uh, it, which if you then, it's obviously a trivial example, but replicate that thousands of times and you get this phenomenon. One of the strongest findings from social psychology is if you put like-minded people together in a group, the group will become more extreme than any given individual within it. And that's exactly what we are doing to ourselves and that's then manifesting itself in the Congress and that in turn is making it a lot harder to deal with uh, the, the, not only the economic problems that we face, but a, a whole variety of other, others as well. So having said that, and you're not the first to talk about the increased polarization, what's the solution? Larry Sabato's written a book, uh, More Perfect Constitution, but right. you know, how realistic is that? How do, how do we get beyond this? I, th I think there's three layers <coughs> of response. Uh, the, the easiest is, uh, or not the easiest, but the first layer is take the population and the Congress as it is and try to do as many workarounds as possible. So one workaround, for example, just recognizes we're gonna have a lot more inertia uh, when the system is polarized. So my opinion is more things that uh, are like the base closing commission and that have, w that basically say inertia isn't necessarily an enemy, it will be, it, it will be more neutral. Uh, that's a very imperfect solution. So then the second one is to recognize that it's still the case that the Congress is much more polarized than the population even if they're, I'm going in increasing degree of difficulty now, uh, that it's still more polarized than uh, the population. So uh, ways of changing uh, congressional rules, committee structure, uh, 
districting laws too, even though those are difficult to, to change. And frankly, the, the effort that has been put in by many people to try to elect a third party, an independent president, I think is completely misguided because let's say we, first of all, it's not gonna work, but that uh, even if it did, you elect an independent president and the pres that new president has got this bimodal Congress that you know, is either of one camp or the other, it's not exactly conducive to getting anything done. It would be far better to concentrate on electing 30 moderates to the House of Representatives and fill in that middle. And that, by the way, that's more feasible also. So we can do something to try to bring the Congress back towards uh, the population. But when you say it's feasible, just the primary system seems to fool that, people. Right, which is why Sabato <laughs> and others have, have suggested changes in the primary season also. But Point being, there are things that we could do to try to uh, narrow the gap in polarization between uh, the Congress and the people. But I think fundamentally, and this is where I'm gonna end, it's the hardest thing to do, uh, to the extent that a lot of this is coming from us, it's our fault. It's also very hard to fix. It's not like we're gonna force people to go move into, you know, if you're a Democrat, to move into a Republican neighborhood or uh, to subject yourself to either MSNBC or Fox News, depending on your predilection. Um, but I do think that we can all make, what I, and I'll, I'll say this to the students in the room, because I try to do this when I speak at college campuses also. You're now at an age where you're getting exposed to people who have different views from you, and that's a good thing, and don't lose that. Try very hard as you grow up to continue to uh, expose yourself to people who have different perspectives, because it's not only good for you, but it's good for all of us, because it helps to mitigate this uh, social psychology uh, phenomenon where if you're just in the same echo chamber and you're hearing the same arguments over and over and over again, you believe them more than you should. That's the value of the World Affairs Council. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> first question is from just a student. Trying to get that membership. <laughs> That's right, thank you. <clears throat> first question is from Varun. How can the government create jobs and what implications do these kinds of initiatives have at home and abroad? And let me ask you just to go a bit farther with that and sort of define how you see the difference in the two presidential candidates on jobs. Well, look, the role of the government in creating jobs when the economy is extraordinarily weak and the unemployment rate is really high is different than its role in sort of normal economic times. Uh, in normal economic times, the role of the government, frankly, it, at least my perspective, is a more traditional role of doing the things that the private sector can't do. And the re and we can come back to defining that, but the reason that that's uh, a little different when the unemployment rate is so high is that by definition, the private sector in that setting is not creating the necessary number of jobs. And uh, especially when we've got uh, a very deep hole the government can be beneficial or can, can help create jobs simply on the demand side, which is not typically the case, but it is in extraordinary circumstances like we have found ourselves for the last couple of years. Or another way of putting the point is, it makes no sense for the 10-year treasury yield to be hovering at 1.6 or 1.7% and JFK Airport to be the, in the state it's in. It makes no sense for the 10-year treasury yield to be at 1.6 or 1.7% and our broadband uh, uh, penetration rate to be significantly lower than South Korea's. So you can go through, there are a whole variety, there, it makes no sense for the 10-year treasury yield 
to be at that rate and for the next gen air traffic control system not to be in place until 2020. Make, uh, just to pause on that, just as, a, as one illustration of you know, what we could be doing. Uh, next gen, this air traffic control system uses this amazing thing called GPS and uh, it, would allow, uh, it would allow planes to fly a lot closer together and to fly more direct routes from, from one place to another, thereby reducing fuel usage, reducing carbon emissions, uh, helping all of us because transit time is reduced. It's also a lot safer because uh, you can do all of the movements on uh, the ground and land, landing and takeoff uh, in one integrated system and be a little less exposed to uh, people who might be falling asleep or, or what have you. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that there's, there's basically no counter argument to except for that front cost of putting it in place. But when so many people are out of work and when we can borrow so cheaply and when we're going to do this anyway, it's just a question of how quickly, it makes sense to be accelerating it as much as possible. There is no reason in the world in my mind that we should be waiting until 2020 to have this system in place as an example. So uh, the difficulty in many, uh, the difficulty is many of the things that you think make sense uh, normally are flipped on their head when the economy is really, really weak. And you see that tension playing out. Normally, it's a good thing for we as, for the country as a whole to be saving a lot and not spending as much because the higher savings rate helps to finance investment and productive uh, productivity and so on and so forth. But today, uh, given where the unemployment rate is, it would be unfortunate if we raised our national saving rate too quickly and thereby constrained demand. Normally, on the financial sector, you want uh, lots of additional capital and lots of prudential uh, uh, protections against excessive risk taking. But coming out of an ex extremely weak economy, you have to be careful about how quickly you do that because there's tension between uh, getting the economy back on its feet and those longer term goals. Same thing for the budget deficit. It is affirmatively uh, harmful for the budget de deficit to be too high when the economy is back on its feet. But frankly, it, it would be a problem to be cutting the deficit <coughs> too quickly right now. And actually, just, there, just on that, because it's the topic of a lot of discussion, the I just came back from Tokyo where the whole IMF World Bank uh, uh, thing was about, uh, was about jobs versus austerity yet again, never ending. And what that misses, as in many things in life, is the crucial uh, concept of timing. We need both jobs and austerity. The question is how you transition from one to the other. Uh, and in my opinion, the right policy combination at this point, given that we still have uh, this big risk of losing millions of people in terms of their productive work for life, is to be making additional investments today. So I will go out there and be beyond the sort of where the political discussion is and say mm -hmm. we should be doing a lot more today while the treasury yield is so low mm -hmm. to be accelerating infrastructure investments and doing other things that we would have done anyway and put people back to work. And then couple that with very aggressive deficit reduction, but that doesn't take effect right away. So you enact it now, it takes effect over time. 
That way you avoid the drag on the economy today, but you still are putting the country on a, on a sounder uh, fiscal path. And frankly, neither candidate's really putting that combination. The, the frustration to me is following a financial crisis where you have the weak labor market and this big run up in debt, you need a duality of response. You want, I'll say the word, you want stimulus up front and delayed fiscal austerity that's enacted immediately. That combination or barbell is the right fiscal policy for, uh, for us, for Europe, and for Japan, and no one's doing it. Mm -hmm. Some people are doing the stimulus without the, the, the sound medium-term fiscal uh, consolidation. A lot of people are doing immediate fiscal austerity, and I think there's no evidence that that, under at least most conditions, uh, actually boosts growth. Uh, but no one's doing the right combo. And depending on which side you are, you're stepping on the third rail. Before we open it up to the audience, um, there's a question that somebody has out here. What can you tell us about what's happened in the last few hours that we cannot read in the Wall Street Journal online? Nothing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we took care of that. Yeah. No, I, well, let me just very <laughs> briefly say uh, that uh, as now as a representative of Citigroup, Citi is uh, obviously recovered substantially over the past few years. I'm excited about the path that it's on, and Michael Corbett, who's the uh, incoming CEO, is a very good guy who has been at the firm for about for about three decades, knows it inside and out, and so uh, he has already said on a call this morning he plans on continuing the same strategy, so uh, uh, continuing on the path to, that we, we've been on, I think, is uh, the only message I'd, I'd leave you with. Good. Questions from the audience? Yes, sir. If you'll wait for a microphone, please. And then I have more student questions because you're so good today. I have two questions. One is, in the immediate term, uh, how are they going to fix the fiscal cliff crisis? And couple that with the increase in taxes that are proposed to take place next year with the overview of a weak economy and the GDP performance uh, to date. So those are the two questions that I have. Sure. Well, look, uh, so the way the fiscal, a couple comments on the fiscal cliff. The first is it's typically framed as if we do nothing, it's a four to five percent of GDP fiscal consolidation because of higher taxes and lower or, and the spending cuts. The only thing I'd say about that is the probability that we have a four to five percent of GDP fiscal contraction is 0, 0.000. And the reason is we're either going to have a deal, in which case the uh, fiscal consolidation, the deficit reduction is a lot less than that. Or if we don't have a deal over the tax cuts and the uh, spending reductions, we also don't have a deal over the debt limit, which will become binding again by next spring, in which case the fiscal constraint is way bigger than 4 to 5 percent of GDP. It's more like 9 or 10 percent of GDP, plus huge confidence effects and like that, that scenario can't happen. So because that is so very painful, there will be a deal. And what I've been telling people is, there will be a deal by mid to late January. The only question is, is it before or after December 31st, which obviously matters a lot. Uh, and that, in turn, I think depends on what, ha what happens in the election. So uh, right now, in-trade is at, uh, or at least this morning, it was at uh, a 62% probability for the uh, president getting, getting reelected. So if I just take that as a base scenario to start with, uh, that configuration of President getting reelected, 
and the House uh, remaining Republican, which is the most like, by far the most likely scenario, the Senate remaining Democratic. A uh, couple comments on that. First, we're back in this box of divided government, which makes uh, governing hard. Uh, second, uh, the consistent with that, when you're in this polarized political environment, you don't get punished for sticking to your base. Because if you think about it, despite the debacle of last summer, in this scenario, everyone still wins. President gets reelected, the House remains Republican. All the people who, are, who were involved in that set of negotiations last summer, they all keep their jobs. Uh, final thing is, how does this play out with regard to the specifics of the fiscal cliff? Now, uh, the conventional wisdom in Washington, which you should always be really skeptical of, but uh, anyway, the conven I, I, have grown, uh, I have grown increasingly skeptical, and I try to uh, uh, call it the Excella corridor echo, echo chamber. So uh, the conversations you have on the Excella between uh, New York and DC, it's about this wide um, in terms of spectrum of views. Um, the, the conventional wisdom is that there will be a six to nine month extender deal put in place before December 31st with some process to follow to fill in the details. Now, if this sounds familiar, it kind of should because that's sort of kind of what we did last time. Um, here's why I'm not entirely sure that that's the way it plays out. No one can give me a good answer to, well, what happens to the tax cuts in the meanwhile? So the whole the big fight, as you know, is over uh, the $250,000 income line in the sand uh, and the tax cuts. So let's just think about this. You put an extension in place. If the White House agrees to extend all the tax cuts, including above 250, for another nine months, their credibility that at that point it's re you're really going to end them presumably would be somewhat impaired. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know why the House Republicans would ever agree to allow the tax cuts above 250000 to expire for that nine-month period, uh, as long as the White House promised to keep them on the table in good faith during the negotiating period. So my difficulty in seeing the nine-month extension is, what are you doing with the tax cuts in the meanwhile? And if you could reach a deal over the tax cuts for nine months, you could just reach a deal over the tax cuts and be done with it. So what could change that? A uh, couple things. One. If the economy weakens a lot, so instead of 100 to 150,000 uh, a month job growth, it's 25 or zero or minus 50, uh, the White House will be a lot more eager for a deal. If, and, and let's all hope this doesn't happen, if the US is involved in any new armed conflict anywhere in the world, there will be a deal before December 31st because uh, you're not gonna have the defense spending cuts occur uh, on at the beginning of January in that scenario. Uh, and then on the Republican side, look, uh, what I'm trying to say is the White House, ha to get a deal, will have to move off of the 250 in some way if you want to get a deal before December 31st. And the House Republicans are going to have to come down from infinity. So that's what's going to have to, that's kind of the closure that has to happen. So the interesting thing is what will happen to the Republican Party if uh, Mr. Romney loses and if they lose, say, 10 seats in the House? Not enough to lose the House itself, but enough that it's kind of like, ooh, that hurt a little. <laughs> because in that scenario, there's going to be an internal debate, as it typically happens following these sorts of episodes, where uh, there's a little bit of navel-gazing, and people say, well, why did we lose? And there, it's not hard to figure out the two camps. The two camps will be, 
We lost because we weren't tough enough on the administration, we weren't pure enough, and we weren't strong enough. Another camp will be because we lost because we were too tough, we were too strident, we didn't reach uh, sufficient accommodation, we didn't show that we could govern. To the extent that, and I don't know how, th how that debate plays out it depends on how many seats are lost, exactly what stance Mr. Ryan in that scenario would take as he goes back to the House, all sorts of things that are difficult at this point to predict. But my only point is, if the latter camp of uh, we lost because we were too strident wins out, then you know, you, you're likely to come down to you know, a, a million dollars. And once you're at, you know, the White House is coming up from 250, the House Republicans come down from infinity to a million, then you can kind of see something happening. The only other way that this could go is if the White House, and this would be a difficult pivot for them, but if they said uh, our goal in his $250,000 pledge was we wanted some additional fairness in the tax code, and it doesn't have to be done through marginal tax rates, we'd be willing to accept reductions in tax expenditures, tax breaks, to achieve the same results. That could really open things up to get a deal too. But I, that, that's completely inconsistent with their campaign rhetoric at this point. So uh, hard, it's, it's difficult for me to see how this moves fast enough to get everything in place by, by December 31st. What will happen then is the Full Employment Act for CNBC because it, as we approach December 29th, December 30th, uh, you know, they'll be on the 24-7 uh, nonstop death watch, right, exactly, January 1st, January 2nd. Uh, that, I, I suspect very quickly thereafter we will have a deal um, because the, it'll be like the TARP process where uh, the external pressure is uh, significant enough that it forces people together. Now the only other thing I'd say is I suspect, I don't know whether it happens uh, December 31st, January 2nd, or following a six to nine month process. But I suspect that uh, the ultimate deal that happens here that gets you a significant debt limit extension will have more meat on the bones than most people think. And the reason I say that is I don't think the House Republican Caucus is gonna go for a two year debt limit extension without something, if it's just process or if it's just discretionary spending cap. So it'll have to be something more specific. So I guess the way I would put it is the, the Acceler Corridor conventional wisdom is we'll have a deal before December 31st and it will be a, a joke. And I am increasingly of the view that it's not clear to me that we'll have the deal by December 31st and it's also not clear to me that it will be a joke. Other questions? Yes, sir, back over there. This will probably be uh, briefer, but a lot of that uh, was based on in-trade being correct, but they yeah. can't really predict the next two uh, debates, which may uh, impact that. So uh, run, it, uh, run the prediction if Romney were uh, the winner and picked up three senators on his coattails, kept the House about like it is. Would that change anything? Absolutely. So in the scenario, uh, a couple comments on that scenario. First, I think if Romney wins, uh, a couple comments first. Uh, the reason that the in-trade is at 62% and Nate Silver, who I think is the, the best uh, at the state-by-state state, uh, electoral college analysis, is, at, is a little bit higher than that, is just the compound probability is a lot lower than each individual state for Mr. Romney. He's gotta pick up such a string of battleground state wins 
and they're not perfectly correlated. So just as an example, if we've got to win both Florida and Ohio, and even if they were both 50-50, if they were not correlated at all, then he's only got a 25% chance of winning. Now, they are correlated, so it's not that bad, but it's still, you can't just look at each state and, and you've got to string them together for him, which is much more challenging. I also, though, agree if he's able to do that, it is very likely the Senate flips Republican under that scenario. Uh, and so you're in this then trifecta of the White House, the House, and the uh, Senate all being Republican. It opens up the possibility in this bimodal Congress of legislating on a purely partisan basis, uh, which may not produce great legislation, but it produces legislation. So uh, two things. One is what happens before December 31st and then what happens after that? First, before December 31st, it's possible that you get a deal in that scenario. Uh, in order for it to happen, though, the president would have to be willing in his final act of office to sign a legislation extending all the tax cuts, which he may or may not be willing to do. If he just says that's you know a bridge too far for me, I just lost, leave me alone. Uh, I think the House Republicans would say it's, you know, it's that or nothing, uh, and so have a great trip back to Illinois and we'll deal with the new guy. In which case, we will go over the fiscal cliff, but a friend of mine called that bungee jumping because we're gonna go off <laughs> and you know exactly where you wind up. Uh, so on you know, when the new Congress comes in, they make the tax cuts retroactive at the beginning of the year, they extend the debt limit. Now here's the thing. In that scenario, the big, the big deal doesn't happen until September or so because what you'll do is you need to allow your team some time to get in place and what have you. You also need time to pass a budget resolution. The reason that's important is that's the only way you can get things done in the Senate with 51 votes. Because a budget resolution carries reconciliation instructions with it. That allows you to legislate with 51 <laughs> votes. They're not gonna have 60. So uh, then the really interesting question is, and that takes some time, what, what is in that big fiscal package in September? Because right now they're promising you know, tax reform, uh, premium support in Medicare, block granting Medicaid, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, et cetera. The system does not have the bandwidth. Let me just clue you guys in. The system does not have the bandwidth to handle more than one or maybe two big things. There's no way if you go down a campaign and this is on both sides and you have this laundry list of seven huge things, they're not all happening in one year. So how do you prioritize those promises? And what I'd say about that is, if I had to bet now, I would put block granting Medicaid at the top of the list. And the reason is tax reform is really easy to say, it's really hard to do, uh, especially coming out of a housing-led downturn in which uh, state and local governments were still struggling. Uh, premium support in Medicare, whatever its pros or cons, is very easy to demagogue. Block-granting Medicaid is sort of perfect because, first of all, it's where a lot of the deficit reduction in the Ryan plan comes from on paper. Uh, under current law, Medicaid goes from 2% of GDP to four by 2040. Under the Ryan plan, it goes from 2% of GDP today to 1% of GDP by 2040, just by block granting it. Now, you can evaluate the probability that simply turning it over to the states is gonna take 75% of the cost out, but I'll leave that to the side. On paper, it looks good. Second thing is uh, that it's really hard to pin harm on it. So someone says, oh my gosh, you're gonna cut off grandma from Medicaid, and, and the response is, of course we're not. We're just turning it over to the governor. The governor would never do that. Uh, what are you talking about? So it's kind of got a extra layer of protection. And the final thing is you can do what we did in welfare reform in the 90s, which is 
State and local governments are still facing about a $50 billion aggregate deficit next year, next fiscal year. Uh, and so if you put a little bit more money on the table up front, an extra $5 billion for a couple years, you'd have a lot of governors saying, sign me up. And the fact that their successors in 20 years are gonna have trouble with the fact that you're then flatlining, it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. So you put all those things, and it's consistent with the federalism, returning power to the states, and so on and so forth. So if I had to pick one, that's what it would be. We have a question back there. Can you quantify how much uh, the Fed's bond buying has affected the yield on the 10-year note, and what are we ever gonna do to unwind that? So the Fed's own estimates suggest uh, that uh, all three rounds of QE have reduced the 10-year yield by 80 to 120 basis points. Uh, there are a whole bunch of people, which is a noticeable effect. There are a whole bunch of uh, analysts who think that may be high, but it gives you an indication of what their own, uh, their own internal analytics, uh, and at least I'd say the bulk of the outside analysts. So that's their view, and then there are a few estimates suggesting a smaller effect. I'm not aware of anything that suggests uh, above that rate. Uh, unwinding it. Uh, you know, one, one has to wonder, we're gonna have a, a transition at, as the chairman of the Federal Reserve uh, uh, start at the beginning of 2013. Uh, one, one has to wonder why someone wants that job because uh, <laughs> you're sorta out of ammunition in fighting the short run unemployment problem and you've got this massive complex undertaking to unwind, as you say, balancing uh, the you know, the potential inflation risk, which by the way at this point is still non-existent in, in terms of any uh, observable indicators, uh, against unwinding too fast and thereby exacerbating uh, the unemployment rate, everyone's gonna be unhappy with it. So th there, th that is just an incredibly challenging uh, line to walk. And I don't have the perfect answer for you because this is gonna, this is the kind of thing that you can't specify ahead of time, it's gonna require a lot of uh, adjustments uh, from quarter to quarter, or from meeting to meeting. And, and so by the way, that's also gonna mean that uh, it's gonna be very important for the next chairman or chairwoman to handle the uh, FOMC very well because you're gonna have a lot more activity in terms of uh, we, gotta, we gotta step back a little, okay, we need to go a little faster and so on and so forth. Let's do a student question. We'll come to you next because I think this is very interesting. This is from Shawshank Kalavaithi. Are lower growth rates inherently a byproduct of developed economies? Countries like China and India and Japan 30 years ago have growth rates in excess of 8% some years, while the United States is stuck at a mere 1.7%. So uh, what I would say is that for the economy as a whole, the reason that we're growing at around 2% now has mostly to do with ourselves. Uh, however, for the typical household within the United States, for the median worker, uh, the fact that for the past two or three decades, taking a longer term perspective, uh, income has been stagnant has a lot to do with the fact that the effect of global labor supply, that is those developing economies, uh, has doubled to quadrupled over that period of time. It's put a lot of downward pressure on e median wages. Uh, 
a couple comments, therefore, about, uh, about the future. The first is there's a very important question going on uh, that I don't think has been uh, widely communicated about the future of those growth rates. Let's take the Chinese economy as, uh, as an example. And I'm not talking about the slowdown to 7% and how it will play out over the next 12 months. I'm talking about the next uh, decade or two. Because uh, the reason that China has been able to grow so rapidly is fundamentally that they've been able to move workers from agriculture into higher productivity manufacturing and services, basically from the interior to the coast. And if you look at per capita GDP in China versus the United States, the conclusion is there's a whole lot more catch up that is possible. Uh, where they're approaching the technological frontier. Once you reach that point, life gets a lot more complicated, or as you approach it, because the nature of growth changes from just shifting workers into, uh, from one sector to another, to how do you get growth going at a more rapid rate within that sector, which has to do more with innovation and property rights and lots of other things that uh, are not yet firmly in place in China, let's put it that way. Um, the, the thing I wanted to point out, and that really came up uh, has come up uh, repeatedly over the past six months but has not gotten popular attention is there are increasing questions being raised about the validity of that per capita GDP comparison as a guide to continued future growth in the Chinese economy. And the reason is economists have this thing called the Lewis turning point, which is the point at which shifting workers from agriculture to manufacturing or services no longer adds to aggregate productivity. And there are more serious scholars who believe that China is at or close to that point than you would think. Mm. And the intuition basically is if all the people who could be productive in a factory have already moved, then the fact that there are tons of people still in agriculture doesn't say anything about uh, the, the gain that you get from shifting them to some other sector. And if that's even got a 20% chance of being right, the consequences are monumental. Because China basically at this point is a huge leverage bet on growth. It makes, it makes a lot of sense to go build an airport where no one lives if the economy is going to grow by 8% and uh, activity will follow it. It's going to turn out to be a disaster to have built that airport if growth turns out to be 2%. So uh, just one question about uh, prospects for the next couple of decades even though, I, again, the bulk of uh, the evidence and the bulk of the uh, uh, views is continued 7-8% growth until per capita GDP converges, that is not a great story for the typical American household. And uh, I am actually, over the next 10 years after we get through this mess, um, somewhat optimistic about the US economy when you put together the energy revolution that people in this room undoubtedly know, uh, know a lot about uh, with, uh, I think we are at stage one of a 10 stage process in the big data revolution and, and the technology that will uh, flow from that and that's a very positive thing. But, and third, that we are, uh, I think to a degree that is not also widely appreciated rapidly moving to a more efficient healthcare system than is commonly appreciated. Those three things are really big uh, boosts to US economic activity. I am just not convinced that they're all gonna filter down to the 50th percentile 
uh, in the way that we'd like. I think you'll have the last question if, if we'll wait for the microphone. A couple of, uh, one comment, uh, it's a little discouraging as a conservative who moved to Texas first in the 60s that the only time that you really highlighted where government functioned when there was a 60 plus percentage Democrat majority in both houses for LBJ. In my lifetime, that's the only one that's existed. Uh, the question is, uh, both you and Secretary uh, Geithner came into office in the Obama administration with several years of responsible positions in the prior administration. What specifically are the things that you didn't expect that are now the common comment that it, things are just a lot worse than we thought they were? The single biggest mistake, I, look, first, a lot of things went right. It's easy to forget uh, where we were and how, ba how bad a lot of you know, the, the, the situation was. But uh, if you wanted me to focus on what, what on lessons learned, the single biggest mistake that was made was putting far too little weight on the Reinhardt Rogoff hypothesis about what happens following financial crises. Because every single formal model, whether it was the feds, ours, the Congressional Budget Office, outside forecasters, they all suggested this was a very deep but very temporary problem, that we would bounce back quickly, it would be a V-shape. So it's a big deep hole, but you got a nice spring back on the, other, on the way out. Uh, the historical evidence, however, suggests that when you go through one of these episodes that are severe financial crises, that's not what happens, that you have this kind of hard slog for five, ten years following it. And that is a fundamentally different environment than a V-shape. In the fall, in uh, 1907, 18, uh, basically pre-20th pre, uh, uh, century, uh, other than perhaps the 1907 uh, collapse. But what that is really saying is uh, in the modern era, other than what we just lived through, we only really had one severe financial crisis, which was the Great Depression. In other countries where there have been severe financial crises, the experience has been, again, kind of this hard slog. Now, why does that matter? I think it matters for several reasons. First, just in terms of expectations. Uh, you know, you, you don't hold out hope of a very rapid recovery if you're in one of these uh, episodes. The second is I think it underscores the need for that duality of response that I mentioned of the stimulus with deficit reduction that's enacted now that takes effect over time rather than kind of pivoting back and forth between them. You need both aggressively. The third is the nature of the stimulus. Uh, you know, we, the debate in the U.S. over the stimulus is it either didn't work or it was too small. Those are sort of the two points of view. And I think they're both wrong. Uh, the evidence that it didn't work in taking the edge off of unemployment, I think, is pretty weak. If you look across states, as just one example, uh, the states that received more stimulus money did have a, uh, a better evolution in their unemployment rate than the states that received less, and so on and so forth. Uh, but then the people who then say, okay, that's right, but then it should have been you know, $1.3 trillion instead of $800 billion. It was too small. That was the, that was the core problem. And I'm not even going to get into the congressional dynamics on how that wasn't feasible. Uh, the problem with those folks is the frame at the time was temporary, targeted and uh, temporary, timely, and targeted. Okay, and if you just put 1.4 trillion instead of 800 billion out into the economy in the fourth quarter of 2009, 
The fourth quarter of 2009 would have been stronger, but I don't think we would be any different today as a result, or only very slightly different. So the problem was not that there wasn't enough stimulus being delivered in late 2009, it's that we walked it off too quickly in 2011 and 12 in the face of a five-year window. Similarly, on housing, if you're in a V-shaped recovery, given that anything you're going to do on housing is complicated and messy and has winners and losers and what have you, I can understand the argument for punting on it because if the economy's going to come back anyway, housing will come with it. If you're in instead of one of these hard slogs, you have to throw the ball long on housing because that's one of the key transmission mechanisms that creates this prolonged sluggishness, a weak economy onto weak housing, back onto a weak economy, and so on and so forth. So there are lots of things that follow from getting uh, that wrong. And the reason, actually, I mentioned uh, a 20% downside scenario that China may be uh, at or near the Lewis turning point is uh, we need to be doing more of the 20% downside scenarios because if that had been done in late 2008, what, what if this is five years instead of a V-shaped 18-month kind of experience? Again, I think a lot of I, I think a lot of things would have flowed from that perspective. And so, uh, lesson learned is don't just take the Acceler quarter conventional wisdom echo chamber, but do a lot more sensitivity analysis around that, and especially focus on the downside scenario, which is uh, what I was trying to do with regard to the developing economies today. And that'll be our closing word. Thanks, okay. Peter. Thank Appreciate you very it very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.